Let's jump into playing politics with the uh, Star Tribune. John and Doug are with us. John Rash, DJ Tice on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus Hotline. Gents, as always, it is a pleasure. Uh, the whole year is different. Politics is different. Conventions are different. Democrats taking place this week. Doug, I will start with you. Um, how different is it? And what has stood out to you so far through the first couple of days? Well, of course, the format of the um, convocation is uh, quite different uh, and uh, unprecedented, really. It, it's interesting. I kind of miss the hoopla, frankly, of the uh, the, the faux convention and the, the 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 kind of live action of the of the crowd and so on. You know, it's been many decades since conventions were real uh deliberative bodies where you needed to bring a bunch of people together so they could deliberate and debate and and actually make decisions and so they have been uh you know night night after night uh infomercials for many decades but they still had all the trappings of a real public event uh, and they did have the uh you know the live crowd which you couldn't quite predict what they were going to cheer at and how long and all that so it it kind of had some of the energy of an actual live event this now there's no mistaking is just a four-night uh campaign ad and i'm not sure how well it's playing the the production values are very high and uh you know the speeches being uh taped by and large are delivered very smoothly, uh, but I think there is a certain loss of uh, uh, of energy. So that's one thing. On the content, it's like everything in the Trump era. It's not really new. It's just more so. Uh, every time there's a campaign against an incumbent president, the cam- the convention of the opposing party is all about how terrible uh, the condition yeah. of the country is under his maladministration. Uh, but here, that relentless dark drumbeat is stronger than ever. And I think the question we may come out of this whole week with is, uh, can never Trump be enough of a platform uh, for the Democrats to run on? It is the unifying theme that they've got, but is it enough? All right. Hang on to that, because I want to get back to that, because it's a very important point. But the same first questions to you, John. Um, how it looks, I'm with Doug 100%. I, I said the other day, the last time we had actual news coming out of convention, I think might have been the Republicans in 1980 when it was George Bush as the VP and not Gerald Ford. It's just infomercial after infomercial. Does it seem that different to you? And is there a particular speech or something that has really caught your eye so far? More than anything, what stood out to me, Chad, is that it's working doesn't mean that it's good or even or better but given the challenges that they face in this pandemic from a technological production perspective they're carrying it off they have the key speakers that they want they're keeping within schedule and they've been consistent in messaging so based on what they feel they need to do particularly with the lead in most public opinion polls they're able to deliver so far and in terms of making news the speeches that the people who have we have seen so far would have made about the same amount of news, certainly focused mostly on former First Lady Michelle Obama. 
and her well-delivered, and in some quarters certainly well-received speech directly taking on President Trump while only mentioning his name once. But what's perhaps been the strongest part of the production value and thus the political value has been the focus on everyday Americans. And we saw that most pronounced in the roll call last night, where instead of very similar looking delegates, often with their most prominent politician, you look back to, you know, previous conventions, it probably would have been Senator Klobuchar and the Democrats and Representative Emmer for the Republicans. He's saying the great state of Minnesota cast its votes for the respective candidacies. You got a better look at the states, the people, and particularly in states where the Democrats don't historically do well. You were reminded of some of the diversity that exists in North and South Dakota, as an example, and just two, you know, in terms of the breadth and and depth of, of the emerging demography in this country. And I found that quite compelling. So two nights down and at least relative to the challenges they could have faced, they've been able to overcome them. So, John, I'll stay with you and and go to what Doug said, because I was planning on raising this. Um, It's always about the incumbent, as DJ said, no matter if it's Obama, it's Clinton, it's Bush, but even more so because the president is such a large figure. The, the, The people just love him, the people that detest him. You also have to make the case for your candidate. It can't just be never Trump. How is that rolling out so far when they're trying to me really try to tell you that Joe Biden can be your moral compass. He can be your decent person. He has been there before. You may not agree with him. He may not be as revolutionary as a Bill Clinton was or a John Kennedy was or Barack Obama was, but he's our guy. Are, are they, in your view, have they touted Biden enough as opposed to saying anybody but that guy? They need to pivot towards policy and towards what they plan to do more tonight and tomorrow night because they have the top of the ticket in Senator Harris and Vice President Biden who are going to be speaking to the nation. The people who have spoken so far are more character references and people who truly understand from the profound presidential challenges that they'll face, such as former Presidents Clinton and tonight President Obama and, of course, First Lady Michelle Obama, who was a witness for eight years to what happens in the White House and also how Vice President Biden worked so well with her husband, Barack Obama. So I think that you're both right that they need to focus on that tonight. Politically, however, it is important to define the opposition as they're trying to do. And in particular, the Biden campaign does not want to get caught in what Secretary Clinton's campaign did which is President Trump quite deftly turned it into a binary choice election as opposed to a referendum on an untested, relatively unknown presidential candidate like Donald Trump. So she tried to make it about him. He made it about both of them and made her unacceptable enough to enough Americans that he won the presidency in an upset The Biden campaign, conversely, wants to make it a referendum on the incumbent, as they usually do, but particularly this president, considering how polarizing he has been. So, so far, they've been successful in that. But again, they have to turn toward the future. We expect to hear more of that tonight. You know, I think there's two uh, there's two big differences 
between this campaign and, and 2016. One is that Trump is no longer an unknown quantity. He's very well known. Uh, and everybody's got a very strong opinion. Uh, and many people, if, if you're asking about him personally, it's a negative opinion even if they may feel more negatively about the uh, uh, some figures on the left. Uh, but he's now no longer uh, an empty slate that you can fill in with whatever you want. People know who he is. On the other hand, or at the same time, Joe Biden is not the repellent figure to many people that Hillary Clinton was. Uh, he may not excite a lot of people, but he doesn't mm-hmm. – uh, yep. he, he doesn't – repel people in the same way that uh, that Hillary did. So I think they have to t- stay take advantage of that and and frankly although I raised the question I think the never trump strategy is their best bet because the more they get into policy the more they start to risk losing some of the middle ground voters they need if they you know hit immigration too hard they can't become very moderate on immigration or they're going to lose the whole open borders crowd or at least turn them off and yet if they if they they don't want to go there because people in the middle those independents might be uneasy with that if they get into too much criminal justice they don't want to turn people's attention to what's going on in portland and chicago and seattle and hugo (laughs) <laughs> for that matter, uh, because that's an issue where, again, the middle America uh, you know, might be at risk for them. So I think policy, frankly, is a minefield for them. They're better off staying with Joe is steady, stable. You know him. He's reasonable uh, and and he's not a big turnoff. And Trump is Trump. And that's your that's your campaign. And I think it, the president I think it probably works for them. <clears throat> Sorry about that, Doug. The president was in Minnesota. A recent poll showed the race tightening. Can the president win the state? And what effect does it have on the uh, Senate seat? We'll discuss that right when we come back. Playing politics, Star Tribune and uh, WCC Radio, Chad Hartman with DJ Tice and John Rash. John, the president in Mankato earlier today uh, gave his uh, typical stump speech, but then tailored it to Minnesota. We know it came very close in uh, 2016. 1.5 points was the separation. He won 79 of the 87 counties. An Emerson poll recently showed a separation of three between himself and Joe Biden. Most of the time, the polls have been much uh, larger in favor of Joe Biden. What's your feeling about Trump in the state this time? It's a lot of the same points we made before about Biden and and differences with Biden uh, compared to Hillary Clinton, but how the president has played in this state, I think most people do uh, expect him to be in the state a fair amount of time. Indeed, and he realizes that his geography needs to change this time. Some of the states that he had won in 2016, he is less likely to win, and he is making a clear focus on the industrial Midwest and the farm belt up here. And considering how close he came last time, he certainly has a shot to win the state this time. As we all know, the makeup of the state politically is continually shifting. We are the only state in the nation that is a split legislature between Democrats and Republicans, which shows how relatively evenly divided the electorate here has become. He's going to keep focusing on here, I think, so much as with the election nationally will depend on what happens with 
the pandemic and the government's response to it, both on a statewide and a national basis, and of course other intervening events. The only three we're sure about are the debates that will be scheduled between President Trump and Vice President Biden. Right now, I would say it's unlikely that President Trump will win the state. Minnesota, after all, has the longest streak of state wins for Democrats going all the way back to 1976. Last Republican to win was Richard Nixon's landslide in 1972. But boy, the margins are a lot closer than they used to be. And so buckle up. We'll have to see what happens with the rest of the election here. What do you uh, think, Doug? I, well, I agree. I think it's an uphill uh, fight for him, although uh, uh, I think he feels that he's done himself some good on the trade issue uh, with the Iron Range, which is a part of the state that has been drifting uh, red uh, over many years, and uh, and probably that process continues. We have the very stark division between the uh, rural outstate Minnesota and the and the Twin Cities, particularly the core cities. And that, of course, has only been sharpened, uh, you know, both culturally and politically by the events of, of recent months. And as people outstate uh, look at the situation in Minneapolis, uh, it, it, if anything, reinforces their sense of estrangement, uh, you know, from the uh, from the culture of the big city. So, you know, I don't think it's impossible, but I doubt that he's uh, got that in uh, among the states that, you know, he's most hopeful of carrying. Uh, DJ, what effect uh, is this having on the uh, Smith-Lewis race at this particular time? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, the presidential race is going to produce a bigger turnout, as it usually does, and that in general is good for uh, for Democrats. In Minnesota, on the other hand, uh, Trump is going to produce big turnout uh, in the North Country, uh, you know, which is traditionally an important stronghold, vital stronghold for the DFL. But I don't think that Tina Smith is going to run particularly well there, uh, you know, for various reasons. Uh, and, and Jason Lewis is working hard up there and probably will run uh, pretty well up there and, and be a, a pretty congenial kind of figure. So, I, you know, I think there being a presidential race on balance probably helps Tina Smith. Uh, but I think that race could be uh, one to watch. John, it, it appears Lewis, <clears throat> and, he, and he has called out Tina Smith on a regular basis, right? And that's what, you know, a challenger is going to do. It's a lot of the conversation we just had about Biden and Trump. But he is putting in almost all of his time out of the metro area. Is that too much of a mistake to write off such a huge part of the population of the state of Minnesota? We're still talking about a metro area, and parts of the metro area uh, did vote, you know, fairly favorably to the president in 2016. Certainly not as, as strongly as the outstate, but to say, it, I mean, seven-county area is just 95 percent uh, Democrats, that's, that's absurd. Outstate is a smart strategy, but he certainly can't ignore the metro area to the degree that he has, at least the exurbs and some of the suburbs, and let's not forget he represented the second district in Congress for two years before Angie Craig defeated him after he had defeated her in a very close election in 2016. So certainly he needs to make some inroads here, almost more than any Senate candidate that I can remember. He's also hitched himself to a statewide issue, which is Governor Walz's 
response to the coronavirus yep. pandemic, and he seems to be banking on greater Minnesota's difference with many in the metro area about how to respond and people's frustration over this. Now, of course, that can go both ways. The other big intervening event that we have coming up here is the start of school. Already many of them, as you well know, had planned to go distance learning only, and some are moving from the hybrid model they had hoped to have back towards distance only. And so that might really point out the severity of the pandemic and the need to mitigate it from a public policy perspective and make Representative Lewis look even more out of step with especially many in the metro who have to contend with this as well. So that's kind of the wild card in the entire campaign, but particularly regarding the Lewis-Smith race. On the geographic question, I do think it's uh, important to remember that between his radio career and his service in the 2nd District, I suspect Lewis and his people think he's got a pretty good fan base and and pretty good uh, name recognition and so on. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a known quantity in the core kind of Republican exurban district. So right now he's building support outstate, but I'm sure he'll kind of come back to that, uh, that, that, that key area. I got to jump in, guys. We're up against the clock. Thank you so much. Playing politics with the Star Tribune.